Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. For the better part of the last decade, science fiction finally evolved from a niche genre into a mainstream staple. And while so many people are familiar with the so-called fathers and grandfathers of genre, the women who have been instrumental in creating and shaping the nerdverse have gone largely unrecognized. Until today. I'm Courtney Enlow, and this is Sci-Fi Fangirl's Forgotten Women of Genre podcast where we tell the stories of the women who helped some of the most famous fantasy worlds become a reality. Across the decades, women have played vital roles in our most iconic genre narratives. They've helped craft memorable characters, and many of the parts they've brought to life have become the defining template for the adaptations that would follow. Whether on stage or on screen, these actresses contributed as much in their performances as the writers who put pen to paper and the directors who helped capture these performances in the most memorable light possible. But it's often not until they're gone that we truly appreciate them. It's important not to reduce these women to a resume, but to emphasize that everything they did with their lifetimes makes them worth remembering rather than becoming yet another forgotten woman of genre. So today we're talking about the late, great Julie Harris, often referred to as the First Lady of the American Theater. Julie Harris was born in 1925 and grew up fairly well off in Gross Point, Michigan. The daughter of an investment banker, she attended private school, but admitted later in life that thriving in a society as a debutante did not appeal to her in any way whatsoever. It was rumored that she ran away to New York at 19 to become an actress, much to the chagrin of her mother. But Harris was driven to succeed at her dream, and after graduating high school, she attended Yale Drama School. After a year, she took a short break to make her Broadway debut at the age of 20 in a play called It's a Gift. According to Harris, one of her classmates at Yale knew a producer holding auditions. Her friend told her it would be good experience to go and read for the part. Harris was offered the role, but she was torn about whether or not to take it until she consulted with the head of the drama school, Walter Pritchard Eaton, who encouraged Harris to pursue the opportunity. The play ran for six weeks, and then she returned to her studies at Yale. In 1950, Harris won the role that would earn her first critical acclaim in the stage adaptation of the 1946 Carson McCullers novel, The Member of the Wedding. Harris played the story's main character, Frankie Adams, a 12-year-old lacking in friends in her small southern town who secretly dreams of traveling the world. By comparison, Harris was 24 when she took the part. In 1952, the member of the wedding was turned into a movie, and Harris reprised her role as Frankie. Her performance earned her an Academy Award nomination for Best Actress. But even though she lost the Oscar... She was already busy originating another now iconic role on Broadway, Sally Bowles, in the 1951 play I Am a Camera, adapted from Christopher I. Sherwood's novel Goodbye to Berlin. 
If any of that sounds familiar, it's because that play would also be turned into a musical 15 years later called Cabaret. Harris would win her first of five Tony Awards for Best Actress. After I Am a Camera became a film too, Harris was receiving big time notice for her talents as an actress and her ability to seamlessly transition between stage and screen. In 1955, director Elia Kazan cast her in the film East of Eden as Abra, opposite an actor in his very first movie role, James Dean. Looking back on her time working with Dean, Harris once pointed out that he was an actor who would have been on par with today's big names like Tom Cruise or Brad Pitt. She said he would have been right up there with them. He was very exciting, not only enormously charismatic, but also a very intelligent, gifted actor. I know that he had ambition to play Hamlet, for instance. So I hope he would have kept himself working in the theater. It was tragic that he died so young. However, in spite of her early success in film, many of the roles that initially followed East of Eden didn't necessarily possess the same spark. It wasn't until the early 60s that Harris would eventually define yet another role, one that has been inhabited by many actors since. Eleanor Nell Lance in 1963's The Haunting, based off the book The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. No one can hear you if you scream in the night. Isn't that so, Mrs. Dudley? No one lives any nearer than time. No one will come any nearer than that. In the night. In the dark. You're frightened, Nell. Oh, no more. Just when I thought I was all alone. But how did you know my nickname is Nell? Well, that is the affectionate term for Eleanor, isn't it? Yes. Yes, I suppose it is. What a nice way of putting it. The affectionate term for Theodora is Theo. Theo. We're going to be great friends, Theo. Like sisters? Director Robert Weiss reportedly sought out Harris personally for the role, having seen her previous performances on stage. By coincidence, or maybe not, Harris had always held an interest in parapsychology, and that concept serves as much of the backdrop of the film. According to anecdotes from set, Harris was perhaps the perfect choice to play the psychologically delicate Eleanor, but the role also wreaked havoc on her own mental health. During the production, she may have experienced severe emotional distress and had a very distant relationship with her co-stars, often crying in her makeup chair before a new day of filming began. After the movie wrapped, Harris revealed that she had purposely chosen to avoid her co-stars in order to intensify her own performance as a socially isolated woman and reconciled with several of them later on. After The Haunting, Harris took on another Carson McCullers novel when she was cast in 1967's Reflections in a Golden Eye. The film would team her up with not just one, but three of Hollywood's most legendary names, director John Huston, and two co-stars you may have heard of, Marlon Brando and Elizabeth Taylor, maybe? Harris stepped into the role of Alison Langdon, a woman who struggles with depression and neglect from an uninterested husband, played by Brian Keith. The movie received mixed critical reviews and was released to a surprising lack of fanfare or studio publicity considering the cast. Roger Ebert, in his positive review of Reflections in a Golden Eye, noted, Was the movie so wretchedly bad that Warner Brothers decided to keep it a secret? Or could it be, perhaps, that it was too good? But throughout the ups and downs of Harris's film career, she would continually return to the place she'd first been bitten by the acting bug, the stage. 
Over the years, she would earn four more Tonys for various performances. Joan of Arc in 1955's The Lark, American Divorcee, Anne Stanley in 1969's 40 Carats, and the one-woman show The Bell of Amherst in 1976, which was based on the poems and life of Emily Dickinson. Eventually, she made her way to the small screen. In 1980, after guest starring in the primetime soap opera Knott's Landing as country singer Lily Mae Clements, she was offered a bigger part and returned to the series for seven more years of its overall run. She received the Primetime Emmy nomination for Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Drama Series. In total, over the course of her lifetime, Harris was nominated for 11 Emmys, winning three. And the winner is... Julie Harris. But it was also during this time that Harris experienced one of her most significant battles. She was diagnosed with breast cancer. Harris had a mastectomy, but worked through her post-operative treatment and continued to star on Knott's Landing while going through chemo. Later, she would say that the work she was doing and the effort she was putting into the acting helped keep her mind off the nausea and fatigue brought on by chemotherapy, giving her the energy to carry on rather than letting it exhaust her. The musical distinctive voice she was known for would be a benefit to her during another aspect of her career, audio recordings. Her love of literature and researching history motivated her to make recordings of plays, the poems of Emily Dickinson, readings of novels like Out of Africa and Frankenstein, and many others. And she would pass on some of her most important life lessons in writing as well, co-authoring a book called Julie Harris Talks to Young Actors in 1971. It was while starring on stage, her first love, that Harris would suffer a debilitating stroke. In 2001, she was doing a play called Fossils in Chicago. She was preparing for a matinee show, and according to Harris, she had known that she was having heart problems and felt as though something was wrong when she fell from her bed and couldn't get up again. The stroke caused aphasia, which is known as damage to those portions of the brain that are responsible for language, making it difficult for someone to find the right words to say. She improved slightly with regular sessions with a speech therapist. Over the next nine years, she continued to work, doing voiceovers for historical documentaries, and appeared on stage in 2008 in a Massachusetts theater production of The Effect of Gamma Rays on Man in the Moon Marigolds. Sadly, she would experience a second stroke in 2010. On August 24, 2013, Julie Harris died of congestive heart failure at her home in West Chatham, Cape Cod. By then, she had been named a Kennedy Center honoree, received a Special Lifetime Achievement Tony Award, been inducted in the American Theater Hall of Fame, and received the National Medal of Arts, as well as a Grammy. Four days later, on August 28, 2013, the lights were dimmed on Broadway for one minute in her honor. Writing after her death, New York Times theater critic Ben Brantley said, She had a heightened, almost feverish presence that seemed tantalizingly at odds with the naturalism of film. Miss Harris was unabashedly ardent in a way that most movie stars were not. Her tremulousness suggested she experienced life more intensely than those around her. Ultimately, the picture we're given of Harris throughout her life is one of a woman who was fully devoted to her craft, often at the expense of herself. But her passion is what contributed to her most memorable roles, both in front of a live audience and in front of a camera. She breathed life into so many characters, both in and out of genre, that most people probably aren't even aware of her full impact. 
But without Julie Harris, we wouldn't have parts that would have inevitably been played by actresses like Liza Minnelli or Katherine Hepburn. She paved the way with all of her contributions to art with her lengthy and storied career. And it's because she made every role she inhabited so memorable that she will never truly be forgotten. Forgotten Women of Genre is a production of Sci-Fi Fangirls. Today's episode was written by Carly Lane and read by Courtney Enlow. You can find the script of this episode and so much more at SciFiFangirls.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SciFiFangirls.